Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Imagine you have a powerful army devoted to protecting you, but you don't know how to send your army orders. And occasionally, a soldier may break ranks and start shooting in your direction. Your immune system is very much like that army. We need its protection, but our understanding of it leaves much to be desired. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs. I'm talking with Dr. David Schatz, professor of immunobiology at Yale. He studies the immune system to help us better deploy our defenses against disease. His recent work has implications for leukemia and lymphoma. Let's start at the beginning. My body is threatened by disease. What's my immune system going to do to get better at fighting that disease? Well, the first thing to understand is that our body produces a huge number of different B cells which make antibodies. Each B cell has a different antibody, and part of my research is trying to understand how it's possible to make literally hundreds of millions of different B cells, each with a different antibody. That all happens before you're infected with a bacterial or a viral disease. Let's say it's a virus. The virus infects your body. Among those hundreds of millions of B cells in your body, there will be a few that are able to use the antibody to bind onto that virus, sort of with a, a bind it tightly, hold onto it, and help neutralize the virus. But it's just a few of the B cells. And part of the problem initially is that those antibodies don't bind to the virus very tightly. They, they bind it some, but not very tightly, mm -hmm. and they're not very effective at fighting the virus. So the immune system has developed a process to make those antibodies better at binding to the virus and fighting the virus. That process involves uh, the B cells rapidly proliferating, that is making lots of copies of themselves, and while they're dividing, they start to introduce mutations into the genes that encode the antibodies. So each time you make a mutation in the gene, that can change the antibody just a little bit. Some of those changes will make the antibody better, some will make it worse, and some won't have any effect at all. So that sort of learning process that our immune system goes through, that explains why you can't get certain diseases twice, why vaccines work. That's right. So each time these, uh, one of these mutations occurs, if it makes the antibody worse, that particular B cell that's making that antibody has a survival disadvantage. That is, it's more likely to die. However, if a mutation makes the antibody better and it binds the virus better, that particular B cell has a survival advantage. It tends to proliferate and survive better. There will make more copies of it, and it'll go through the mutation process again so that you can have sequential rounds of mutation and survival and proliferation and then more mutation and survival and proliferation. At the end, you can have B cells that will produce antibodies that are a thousand or even 10,000 times better at fighting the virus than you had originally when you were first infected. And those more efficient antibodies, you said, have a survival advantage, but the mistakes can survive. That's right. So during that mutation process, it's a, it's a process that in the laboratory we call somatic hypermutation. 
And as the term would suggest, hypermutation means that it's a very rapid mutation process, much, much faster than the types of mutational processes that underlie evolution. These are mutational processes that make about one change in the antibody gene every time the cell divides. So it's very rapid. A very rapid mutation process is advantageous for, if you will, evolving good antibodies, but it's also very dangerous because you're now making mutations in the genes in your chromosomes. And one of the things that we know is that changes in your chromosomes can underlie uh, the development of cancer. Your family had a really great analogy to explain what's happening. Can you share that with us? Right. So our recent, our recent research has been studying this process of somatic hypermutation. And we have been very interested in the two different phases of this mutation process. So it's important to understand that somatic hypermutation starts with a sort of mutator that initiates the reaction. And after that mutator acts, there's a cleanup crew that comes along. The cleanup crew consists of actually DNA repair enzymes. And that cleanup crew acts on the, 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 the mutations made by the mutator. And the cleanup crew can either act in a very sloppy way, which leads to mutations, or it can act in a very precise way, and it can eliminate the action of the, the, the effects of the mutator. Our recent research has led to some surprising insights about how that mutator is working and how the, uh, the cleanup crew is acting afterward. And to understand uh, this, the, this is where this, uh, this analogy comes in. We were, we were thinking about how to um, best understand this, and we came up with the following analogy, that you imagine that you hire a contractor to paint a mural on the wall of your bedroom in your house, and you tell him exactly where you want the mural painted, and then you go away on vacation and you leave him the keys. He comes in, and uh, when you, well, when you come home from vacation, there it is. The mural is on the wall. It's painted exactly where it should be. It has trees and uh, a field and a stream running through it. And then you go and you look at the security cameras that you had set up around your house, and you discover that what this contractor, this, this painter, actually did was he came in and he painted the trees in the mural exactly where you wanted them in your bedroom. And then he went and painted trees on the walls of other rooms of your house. And after that, the painter left and another group of people came in. They finished painting the mural right where you wanted it in your bedroom. And they took out just the right colors of paint and they painted over all the trees where they weren't supposed to be so that now those trees were invisible. That's exactly what's hap happened. That's what we've discovered is mm -hmm. happening during the process of somatic hypermutation. It's very surprising. This mutator that initiates somatic hypermutation makes mutations in many, many parts of our genome, that is, in many different locations in our chromosomes. It makes it in some places where we want the mutations, in the antibody genes, but it makes mutations in lots of other places as well. Then the cleanup crew comes in, the repair factors, 
and it erases most of the mutations that this mutator put in in the first place, leaving behind only the mutations in the place where you wanted them, or I shouldn't say only where you wanted them, but mostly where you wanted them. It's not terribly efficient. It's a very, it's a very inefficient process, and we don't completely understand why it works that way. Uh, <clears throat> but one of the very important implications of this is that since this mutator is making mutations in many parts of your, your chromosome that could affect many different genes, if the cleanup crew slept in that morning and mm -hmm. failed to show up for work, the results would be disastrous. That is, in the analogy, you'd end up with trees painted on all the walls of your house. But in the B cell, the consequences would be you'd accumulate mutations in a many different parts of your genome, in many different genes where you don't want them. And what are some of the diseases that B cells are linked to? So the consequences of that are that the genes that acquire these mutations can become dysregulated. They can become either turned on when they're supposed to be off, or they can be turned off when they're supposed to be on. The diseases that this is linked to are known as B-cell lymphomas and B-cell leukemias. These are blood cell cancers that are one of the leading causes of, uh, well, they're one of the, the leading cancers in the developed world. Actually, I believe it's the fifth leading cause of cancer, uh, types of cancer in the, in the developed world. So what happens is these mutations can turn off an important gene that tells a cell to behave properly. Or it can turn on a gene known as an oncogene that, tells the, that, that instructs the cell to divide mm -hmm. in an unregulated, inappropriate fashion. Or some oncogenes tell cancer cells to survive when they ought to die. The result is that you get cells that divide too frequently and they have forgotten how to die appropriately. And so they grow and they grow and they grow and you have a cancer. Now, I know that we're far away from seeing a clinical application of your discovery, but right now we treat lymphoma and leukemia by attacking the disease. And there's a lot of collateral damage to the patient. It's very unpleasant. How would cancer treatment change if we could put this knowledge to practical use? So, yeah, it's the, the, the current treatments for cancer are certainly far from ideal, and people suffer a lot because we cannot right now, in most cases, uh, use treatments that will specifically kill and affect only the cancer cells. They also affect other cells in the patient's body. I think our first hope in the, the work that we've been doing would be to prevent cancers from occurring in the first place. Mm -hmm. One of, the, one of the important implications is that it's very important that we keep the cleanup crew active and working properly. Uh, I think that's one of the most important implications of our work is that we now have to pay a lot more attention to the cleanup crew. We don't want to do things that undermine the functioning of the cleanup crew. So if we can do that, hopefully we can prevent some of these cancers from occurring in the first place. Um, I would also hope that we would learn based on what we've studied to perhaps identify new genes that would be involved in cancer. So we've developed um, systems to try to find the genes that are accumulating mutations. 
or that are being affected by the mutator. Once we know a, a pretty complete list of the genes that are affected by the mutator, we hope that we'll be able to then look at those genes and say, are they contributing to cancer? Once we have new genes that are involved, you can start to develop new therapies to target those specific genes and hopefully intervene in cancer in a more specific manner. That kind of potential to either prevent or intervene in a much more targeted way in diseases, it, it exists for a lot of diseases besides cancer through immunology. But most medical schools don't tend to devote the kind of resources and emphasis that Yale does to the science. Why do you think that is? It's, uh, there's really, um, I think there's just one uh, answer to that question, uh, and that's vision. In the, um, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, Yale began to develop a program in immunology. It was initially part of the pathology department. And then in the 1980s, and I want to give a lot of credit to Charles Janeway Jr. and Kim Bottomley, Richard Flavel, and the then dean of the medical school, Leon Rosenberg, they had the vision and they had the foresight to see that immunology was going to play a central role in virtually all human disease. Mm -hmm. It's obviously critically involved in infectious disease, cancer, um, autoimmune disease. There's almost nothing that the immune system doesn't touch on in the way of disease. They had the vision to see not only the importance and central role of immunology, but they also understood that immunology would thrive best as a freestanding department its own entity where the members of that department would be, the, in a sense, the spokespeople or the advocates for immunology at Yale. And so in 1988, under the leadership of Richard Flavel, they created the first freestanding Department of Immunology um, at a medical school in the United States. And that, I think, was a, was a, was a, was a crucial moment for developing immunology at Yale. And other institutions, I think, either did not have that insight, they did not have that vision or that understanding, or I think what happens frequently is that the, the, the current powers at an institution will often resist change. Mm -hmm. And when you create a department of immunology, you will sometimes be taking faculty out of other departments, and I think there's often resistance to that. So we're very fortunate that Yale had the, the visionary leadership to make this happen. Um, whereas at other places, they were probably unable to overcome the, the resistance. There's another great analogy that I want you to share with us that you used to kind of talk about the potential of immunology. Tell us about the car mechanic. Yeah, the car mechanic. This is getting to the question of where we should be putting our resources as a nation in medical research. There's two big categories of medical research. There's translational or clinical research, and then there's basic research. They are both very, very important. And I'm a basic researcher, and I believe very strongly in the importance of basic research. And this analogy is really meant to sort of highlight why basic research is so important and why we as a country and, uh, of course, as uh, Yale Medical School should continue to invest heavily in basic research. So imagine that your car breaks down and you take it into a mechanic and the mechanic says, well, I really don't know how this car works and I really don't know what the, the different pieces of your car do. 
you'd be very surprised. You'd say, well, don't you have a, a manual that describes each piece of the car and how it connects to all the other pieces? And he would say, oh, yes, you're right, I do. And he would go and look at the manual, and he'd, he'd know by looking at that manual, the car mechanic would know what each piece does, how it interacts with the others, what happens when a particular piece breaks, what kind of problem that creates for the car. A doctor treating a patient does not have a manual that describes what each piece of the human body does, what each cell does, what each molecule does. That doctor is enormously hampered because of that lack of knowledge. So just like you would like your car mechanic to have a complete manual of how your car works in order to fix it, you would really like your doctor to have a complete manual explaining how all the different pieces of the human body work. And that's what basic research is really all about. It will be a very, very large manual, <laughs> and it probably will never be completed. Uh, but each time we make another discovery about how one of the little pieces works, we add to the manual and we provide new tools and new understandings for the physicians who are then going to try to fix the, 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 the car, uh, which is your body. And um, so that's, that's the hope. And each little discovery builds on uh, many, many previous discoveries. Thank you. We've been talking with Yale professor of immunobiology, Dr. David Schatz, about his work on immune system development and its implications for leukemia, lymphoma, and other diseases.